Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. The world is full of books proposing counterintuitive claims about the way things are. You could even say books like that are a dime a dozen. But Dr. Carl Hart's book, Drug Use for Grownups, is exceptional, and I might even call it unique. You may have heard about it in the press recently. Dr. Hart provocatively argues that drugs, including drugs like heroin, are much safer physiologically than we ordinarily think, and that the major dangers, including the dangers of addiction, come from comorbidities, risks that people have associated with mental illness and poverty, and not from the physiological substrate of these drugs themselves. He goes further than that, suggesting that we need a radical reform in light of a new understanding of drugs as having far fewer negative effects than we believe and far more positive effects associated with the altering of consciousness than we usually consider. Dr. Hart is a professor of neuroscience and psychology at Columbia University, where he's been chair of his department, and his research focuses on the physiological and behavioral effects of psychoactive drugs. The book is heavily, deeply footnoted, as I learned by reading it closely and going into the footnotes. At the same time, it's a highly accessible and indeed personalized account of a serious and complex set of issues with major consequences for how power is distributed in our society, including, and in particular, on the basis of race and racialized hierarchies. Drug Use for Grownups is one of the most thought-provoking books I've read this year, and I had to have Dr. Hart on the show. 
Dr. Hart, welcome to Deep Background. Let's dive in by starting with a crucial definition that you provide at the beginning of the book that really follows us all the way through. And that is the definition of the word addiction. And you say in the book that you're going to use the definition of addiction borrowed from the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that psychologists use. And that that definition of addiction entails not just that you um, are using a substance regularly, but that it is negatively affecting a major life activity and that it's causing distress to the user. And under that definition, if someone drinks coffee every morning, but doesn't negatively affect the person, even though, you know, if I don't get my coffee, I have headaches or I'm cranky, I'm not addicted, right? That's right. I mean, you can imagine people who drink coffee, people who drink alcohol or other substances and their life is not impacted. They're able to meet all of their obligations. Why would we say that they have an addiction problem? Like in this culture, we have this popular saying of functional addict. There is no such thing. That's an oxymoron. By definition of addiction, that means you're not functional. You're not meeting your obligations. And so simply based on what people put in their body or what they're using, if you use that as a definition of addiction, everybody would be labeled an addict. I think the thing that I was so fascinated about in your clarity about pointing this out about addiction is that you're a neuroscientist. So at least in principle, you're supposed to be a physiology guy. But that definition is way bigger than the physiological definition, right? No, that's right. So, you know, the goal of neuroscience is to try to explain human behavior. And if you're going to explain human behavior, you can't only look at the brain. You have to understand the animal or the human in its social context. Without the context, you will make some mistakes about what's going on without understanding the context. And so I I think most of us who understand anything about human behavior know that we need to understand the social context under which the behavior happens. Because you can imagine some behavior happening in one context may be inappropriate, whereas it's entirely appropriate in another Let's say somebody physically assaults somebody, and that's all you know. And it turns out the person who physically assaulted the other person was a defensive end for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and he physically assaulted the quarterback for uh, Kansas City on the field. That's entirely appropriate, but off of the field, that's not appropriate. So context is everything. It sure is, and that's a great example. Let's move on to another really important topic for you, and that is you condemn the language of harm reduction that tends to surround our discussions about drugs. Say more about that, because on the surface, harm reduction sounds like the most, who could argue with it, you know, idea in the world, and yet in your view, that framing of harm reduction has had disastrous consequences. Yeah, I I just want to be clear, you know, in principle, what people do with harm reduction, they try to help folks who are in need of help. I support that. The thing that I took issue with, is just the term harm reduction. We do harm reduction when we brush our teeth in the morning. We want to avoid cavities. We put on our seatbelt. We want to avoid any sort of harm that might come if we had a car crash. But we don't call that harm reduction. We reserve the term harm reduction only for drugs. And when you do that, you pair the word harm with drugs, 
over and over, and our language shapes uh, how we behave, how we think. So I'm asking folks, maybe reconsider another term, like uh, we're really trying to enhance the health and happiness and safety of folks. And so maybe health and happiness, but to focus exclusively on harms associated with drugs seems short-sighted. Most people are using drugs to enhance the pleasure, to have a good time, to alter their consciousness. We're not thinking about harm so much, but this term harm reduction forces us in this sort of unidimensional space as if harms are the only things that happen when you take drugs. I think the reason that point that you're making was so powerful for me in reading the book is that like a lot of what you do in the book, it just challenges the reader to say, start somewhere different. You know, I get the, the sense again and again reading your book that what you're fighting against is preconceptions that have been kind of drilled into our heads and not by accident. It's not just they're out there in the culture. They've been created by the television that we've watched, the PSAs that we've been seeing, if you're in our generation since we were kids and that the next generation is still getting it's a full, you know, I guess it's what the sociologists would call a full discourse, you know, a full set of ideas and language and beliefs that have been created in a very self-conscious way. A am I getting you that, that you're trying to start us off by saying, hey, everybody, take a deep breath and realize that you're in the grips of these ideas and just question them. Doesn't mean you have to reject them at the end, but start by putting a question mark in front of them. That's exactly right. In our culture, we've been inundated with these messages about drugs uh, that are largely inaccurate. And we've been inundated with these messages because it facilitates some sort of argument or some sort of position of the person who's producing the messages. And it's really easy to say that anybody who uses crack cocaine will become addicted. And we all believe it. Uh, it's really easy to say one hit of heroin and then you're addicted. And I'm asking people to just reconsider this with the evidence. And I'm trying to present evidence throughout the book that I hope people will look at, consider, and uh, reconsider their starting point. Those stories are so powerful. You know, I'm from Boston and grew up as a big Celtics fan. And I remember very, very vividly as a kid when Len Bias died of a cocaine overdose, or at least so it was reported. And, um, you know, the, the takeaway for kids, and I was a kid, was supposed to be you could die from one use of cocaine. There was no serious analysis of the history, the context, any of it. Um, and I don't actually know the facts of it, except that, boy, did it make a central impression on me as a kid. You know, this was a terrifying, terrifying drug, and you should avoid it at all costs. Yeah, same here. I came of age about that time. Um, not only did Lynn Bias die, a week later, Don Rogers died from the Cleveland Browns. And so the message was, this drug is so unpredictable, even one hit can take out the most fit person in our, in our society. That's just an overly simplistic message. Nearly every day uh, before COVID, at least, at our institution at Columbia University, we give cocaine to research subjects and never have we seen such a thing like that. But, you know, it's in a controlled environment, in a medical setting. But Lynn Bias' experience, as the way it was reported in the media, just seemed to be an extreme aberration. But that was the standard that was presented as if it was the standard. 
the real troubling thing about the, the media's approach to drugs is that the approach is done to, uh, to sensationalize this event and almost never done to actually help people, help people who may be using a drug or help people who want a deeper understanding about these things. And as a result, it shapes uh, what we think, it shapes our policies, and it contributes to the restricting of civil liberties and a number of sort of things. And that's the real concern that I have about the way that the media uh, covers drugs. And more importantly, you can be completely wrong in, in your coverage of drugs, and it's okay. You don't have to be complete, and you can be praised as a reporter in the media. And I wonder if that maybe is connected also to harm reduction, because if you said to a reporter later on, well, gee, you overstated the risk, the reporter will say, well, that might be true, but we were reducing harm overall. If people are more scared of drugs rather than less scared of drugs, that's a good thing because less drugs means less harm. Yeah. You know, uh, I think we even take that approach in science and say it's better to err on the side of caution. And then that way fewer people will use. It's like that would be okay if there was not a price to pay. There is a big price by erring on the side of caution when you are incorrect. For example, this past summer, we had a lot of uh, protests uh, related to Black Lives Matter, the killing of George Floyd. Uh, the killing of George Floyd is a good example because we all saw Derek Chauvin put his knee on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. We all saw it. But George Floyd had some drugs in his system. And now the story becomes, oh, the drugs did it. Even though we saw with our own eyes what happened, but people are sensitized to believe anything about drugs that's negative. And then we miss uh, some important sort of uh, facts like, that was a horrible act by this police officer or other police officers when they say something like, oh, they had PCP in their system. The public has been sensitized to believe that PCP causes superhuman strength, causes people to have superhuman strength, which is nonsense. But uh, that's the price that we pay in that the police can get away with harming people, killing people, as long as they scapegoat drugs in the process. That's the price that we pay as a society for erring on the side of caution. People are susceptible to believing nonsense about drugs, even when some abhorrent act has occurred against the person who might have drugs in their system. I just want to pause for a second to underscore the power of the, the point you're making, because it goes to something really subtle about your book that's actually really different from almost all the other books that I've read on the topic. You are making a very powerful point about the real-world hierarchical and race-based social impact of not only drug enforcement, but drug ideology, if I could call it that. And you make that point again and again and again, and very, very successfully and powerfully. So much so that when I was describing the book to, to friends, because I've been very excited having, having read it, several people said to me who hadn't read the book yet, so is this a version of the, the familiar argument that we've now you know, been hearing off and on for the last five or 10 years about how the war on drugs has been effectively a tool for racial hierarchy in the United States? And what I kept on saying to people is, yes, Hart makes that argument, 
But that's not all the book is. The book is also adding a separate argument that is analytically distinct about the scientific reality underlying the assumptions that go into the war on drugs. And what I was saying was the book is trying to make both arguments in relationship to each other. Yeah, that's one of the things that motivated me to write this book, putting together, for example, the people who had been killed uh, by police and they've had drugs in their system. And that kind of stops any sort of analysis about what actually happened. That's a real concern because an injustice uh, may have occurred and we say it's okay because they had a drug in their system. Can you imagine the millions of Americans who may have some metabolite uh, that is some byproduct of a drug in their system? And they happen to have some interaction with someone and they're killed. And because they had a substance in their system, their death is excused or disregarded because of the fact that they had a substance in their system. That would be a horrible injustice. And that's what I'm trying to get Americans to look at. So we avoid any more injustices. Let's talk science for a bit, and I want to start with one of the most fascinating and controversial claims in the book, which has to do with calling on us to rethink the opioid crisis or opioid epidemic. And I think you're making a bunch of different arguments here, and I want to tease them all out so that the listeners can really get a sense of them. So the first one, I think, is that what we hear about the increasing number of opioid deaths or opioid-related deaths, that some of that apparent increase may be a product of reporting, that there's better reporting or more reporting or maybe over-reporting compared to what there was previously. That's just the first of several claims. And the first thing I want to ask you is, what's the, the social scientific basis for thinking that that might be the case? Yeah, if we think about this, we think about who does death investigations in the United States. Most death investigations are carried out by coroners. Coroners uh, and medical examiners both do uh, death investigations, but coroners uh, do most. And we think about what are the skill sets of coroners? In order to be a coroner, all you need is a high school diploma in most cases and a few hours of a death investigation course. So the skill levels of coroners are um, not that high compared to a medical examiner who is a physician who generally has training in uh, forensic pathology. And so now we have these death investigations that are being happening all around the country and they're not uniform. That is, they're not carried out in the same way. In some cases, we don't even have biological confirmation of what drugs the person actually had in their system, number one. In other cases, the person may have had multiple drugs. This is the case for most overdose. They have multiple drugs in their system, including medications that they were prescribed. And also with a number of deaths, people commit suicide intentionally. 
when you add all of this to this sort of this mix, it's really hard to tease apart what was the culprit, the cause of the person's death. Because when multiple drugs are involved, rarely does anyone bother to look at what drug actually caused the death or did the combination cause the death. And so when we say like uh, these drug-related overdoses, we tend to focus on the opioids because that, those are the drugs of the moment. But it doesn't mean that the opioid actually caused the death. Added to that, the fact that many people, uh, when they do street drugs, may get tainted drugs. And so the drugs may be tainted with other things that are more dangerous than the drug that they were seeking. For example, if someone was seeking heroin and they got a fentanyl analog, that fentanyl analog can be a lot more potent than heroin, therefore more likely to cause overdose in an unsuspecting uh, user. And so all of this adds complexity to this overdose mix that is rarely teased apart when we document the cause of death. We'll be back in a moment. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. I'm late. I'm late. Very, very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com I take the point that our statistics are kind of problematic for, for all of those reasons. And by the way, I had no idea that most deaths in the United States are investigated by coroners who don't have medical training. I guess I'm a product of the television age, and I always imagine a medical examiner involved. So that's a totally fascinating fact that I, I had no idea of. But let's imagine that we were able to tease apart the data. Don't you think there would be a 
rise in the number of deaths where opioids were at least involved, even if the cause of the death was the interaction between opioids and something else, or tainted drugs, or a fentanyl-based um, drug that was way more powerful than the, the person who ended up using the drug ever knew. I mean, you're not suggesting, are you, that the idea that there's a lot more opioids out there and that there are a lot more deaths than there were is not true, but rather that the connection between those things, between the number of opioids and the number of deaths, hasn't been sufficiently substantiated. Yeah, I think that we have to think about, well, what changed? What changed in this period where we see this increase? One of the things that changed is that we now have more fentanyl analogs or opioid, synthetic opioids that are more potent than heroin and these other sort of opioids of the past. That changed. And so it will be nice to tease apart to see whether or not um, those are the culprits of, of any increase that we see. Um, and in that way, if that's the case, we can approach this problem by simply doing as some of the other countries have done, um, implementing drug checking facilities where people can test their substance to see if, if they contain adulterants that might be potentially dangerous. And so I don't really know what's going on, but I know one of the things that we can do is be more careful in discerning what is happening so we can uh, better protect our public. Part of the reason that this part of your book is so counterintuitive is that we have this narrative, which is a new narrative associated with the opioids. It's different than the narratives about you know, cocaine or crack cocaine of the 80s. And it's a narrative that big pharma, acting quote-unquote within the bounds of the law, pushed physicians to prescribe lots of opioids that were themselves, those opioids themselves were, as it were, regulated. They were legal drugs in the sense they were legal if they were prescribed. You had physicians being under a lot of pressure and a lot of incentive to prescribe them. And then the way this narrative runs, people got addicted after having genuine real pain that was medically diagnosed, treated by opioids that were medically prescribed, and then couldn't get off of those opioids, and then that led them to um, illegal forms or other forms of the drug that may have caused the, the actual death. And I don't think you talk so much in the book about the big pharma part of that story. And so I really wanted to ask you, do, do you buy that story? I mean, we're hearing it all the time. I suppose big pharma at one point, they wanted to deny the story. At this point, they've changed strategies, right? They've given up and realized their best bet is to say, we're sorry that the companies who did the most of this will pay large settlements, um, that the companies who advise them or participate in it will also take a hit and pay large settlements. And they'll do what big companies always do, which is try to move on to the next thing. But the reason I think this is significant is that it's a different story than the story of a new drug came from the streets. This is a story of a new set of drugs came from corporate America. And I think it makes a lot of people skeptical about arguments for legalization because this looks like a story of what happens when a big corporation gets involved. The big corporation turns into the drug pusher, according to this narrative, and is way better at it in terms of quantity than any number of street pushers could be. And the consequences turn out to be really bad. Well, uh don't make me defend the pharmaceutical industry. I have some contempt for that industry, just like most Americans, whether it's opioids or some other drug. Uh, but that's part of capitalism. They're in it to make money. Uh, the point here is that the pharmaceutical company downplayed 
the addictive potential of something like oxycodone. They downplay it. That's a mistake and they should pay for that. Now, this narrative, they pushed the drugs onto people and these poor people got addicted as a result. That is a little troubling because as a patient, as a person, if you see yourself getting in trouble with something, you bear some responsibility. Now, this isn't to say that uh, people shouldn't listen to their doctor, but if you're having problems, if you're concerned that you are going to have some withdrawal symptoms or something of that nature, you can not take it. That's your responsibility too. I'm just troubled that we think that it's okay to just completely uh, absolve adults' responsibility in their own care. That will potentially lead us down a, a horrible path. Let's dive into that a little bit because it's, it's very provocative in the following way. We live in a society where we're really unsure about personal agency and responsibility in some zones. And addiction is one of those zones, right? I mean, for a long time, the society did have the view that someone who's a drug addict, it's his fault or her fault. And the society assigned a lot of blame for that and was happy to punish people. In recent years, it seems like there's been a bit of a shift. And you know, there's a lot of talk about whether the shift is driven by the largely white nature of the opioid crisis, and that may well be the case. But regardless of the, whether the underlying cause is, is race-driven, there has been a shift to talking about people who have drug addictions as less responsible and as less culpable. And that's usually associated, that shift is usually associated with reformist approaches. And so it's interesting to hear you in the context of, a, of an argument that's radically reformist, still making an argument for personal responsibility. And I, I just wonder if you'd say more about that. No, see, uh, please understand, you can hold two things in your hand at once, right? And uh, so that's, this is a more nuanced argument. First of all, addiction has almost nothing to do with the drug itself. That's a, that's a myth. The vast majority of people who are prescribed opioid pain pills, we're talking 90 to 99% of those people never become addicted. So the vast majority. So let's just be clear about that. Now, that tells you this has little to do with the drug. But we also know that addiction has a lot to do with uh, people who have, for example, co-occurring psychiatric illnesses, depression, schizophrenia, anxiety, all of those sorts of things increase the likelihood of someone becoming addicted. So if that's the case, make sure people co-occurring psychiatric illnesses are treated. We also know that addiction is much more likely in people who, for example, who are underemployed. Uh, unemployed, particularly those individuals who once had middle-class paying jobs, uh, and now those jobs are gone. And those people now do not have the status in their community, in their home that they once had. Those people are much more likely to become addicted than someone uh, who have not had to face that sort of thing. And so how about we make sure people are gainfully employed? All of these sorts of things can be done to make sure that we take care of our people and ensure that they have a less likelihood of becoming addicted or any other problems. 
Now, that's, that puts it on us too as a society. But me as a person, I have responsibility in making sure that uh, I notice when something is going wrong. To be an adult means that you do bear some responsibility, but it does not absolve the state of its responsibility. I think that was very powerfully put. It does make me think that you could imagine someone who's a sympathetic reader saying something like this. Listen, you know, Dr. Hart, I've read your book, and I accept every argument you make in there on the facts. But I look at a statistic that says somewhere between 90 and 99% of people prescribed opioids don't get addicted. And I say, okay, let's imagine that it's 10% who do. Then let's look, break down the data and look at who those 10% are. And some of them are people who, as you say, have mental illness or depression, or alternatively, they're people whose risk factor is their fact that they're poor because they've lost their jobs. So that's not distributed fairly or justly across the society. So then I might conclude if all that's true, and that say 10% are people who are particularly vulnerable and whose vulnerabilities are a product not of randomness, but of structural racism and other features, that's enough to end up with a policy of strong prohibition. Even if it were the case that there are stable, mentally healthy, middle and upper middle class people who could take opioids or other drugs and be totally fine. And then to, you know, to conclude that even a little more strongly, you know, one of the things that, that you talk about in your book is that it's totally reasonable for people who have good jobs and are you know, well-adjusted to, to take drugs and they're pretty much certainly gonna be fine. Um, but maybe that's not where we should be focused. You know, maybe the upside for those folks doesn't outweigh the downside for people who are more vulnerable. How would you respond to that? I would call it a sympathetic reading coupled with a disagreement with your conclusion. Yeah, well, we would have to ban alcohol if that was the case. Well, we tried, right? I mean, I think a lot of people thought we should ban alcohol. We did ban alcohol, and then it went south, and we ended up unbanning it. But I mean, I, you know, I, as a moral principle, I don't think you could be wrong about that. I mean, I don't think prohibition was irrational. Prohibition was highly rational. There was huge harm that was being caused by alcohol. And it's just that the society was unwilling to tolerate the social cost, ultimately. Well, um, I don't know. I think that's naive. We think about uh, automobiles. Every year, we lose 40,000 Americans on the highway because of car accidents. Well, we should probably think about banning cars and we can think about other activities that people die in. People, humans should understand that life is not without risk. But, you know, when we think about restricting these things, first of all, the people who have the means are still going to get their substances. And we have these laws that ban these substances. And that means that these laws will primarily affect those people who don't have means. So those individuals will probably pay an even higher price if we ban these substances, while the people of means, they're always going to be okay. They're always going to get their substances because they can circumvent the laws in ways that the folks without means cannot. There's a fascinating chapter in your book, Carl, about psychedelics, where you begin by saying that unlike lots of other drugs, which you have experimented with in various ways or used, you haven't done so much in the way of psychedelics. 
But you observe that the mostly white, mostly upper middle class people who are into psychedelics, and it's a big cultural movement these days, are at pains to differentiate themselves from users from other drugs, which are coded as less white. And you have a sort of call for people to be a little more open-minded about this. Do you want to say more about whether the movement towards legalizing psychedelics, which does seem to be making progress, is a useful thing from your perspective insofar as it could be leveraged to achieve the social goals that you're looking for, or whether you see it as actually part of the problem because it does rest to some extent, as you argue, I think very convincingly, on a kind of hierarchy of good drugs versus bad drugs? Yeah, it, it troubles me if someone says, oh, I use some ayahuasca or psilocybin to achieve some spiritual enlightenment or to be one with the universe or uh, to heal some problem I had. It's totally acceptable at it, in this day and age. Now, if someone says that I took heroin and I uh, felt good, great, that person is vilified. And when in fact, the two individuals are doing exactly the same thing, they are choosing to alter their consciousness. They're doing exactly the same thing oftentimes. And my point is that we're all doing the same thing. So why not come and stand on behalf of those people who have been vilified for doing exactly what you're doing? I, I know why not, I, I, because the sort of folks who are enthusiasts of psychedelics don't really want to be associated with those other drugs because of the baggage that those other drugs carry, including the perception of the users being predominantly non-white. I get it. I understand that, that why, that's why it happens. What I'm pointing out is that it's wrong because those people who have been persecuted for using heroin or cocaine, um, the penalties that they have, have faced are very real, while these other folks face no penalties. Uh, not that they should face penalties, but they should stand up on behalf of those other people. And I'm asking them to do this very thing. Speaking of baggage, I, I intentionally waited till the end of the interview to, to ask you about this, but it's been upfront in reviews of your book, and you talk about it very frankly in the book. And that is your own willingness to say, you know, for the record, that for a few years you've used heroin in a controlled setting with controlled dosage. You even describe in the book deciding to get off of it and going through the withdrawal symptoms and how you manage that, and then deciding to use it again. And that grabs the attention of the media and it gets people to sit up and take notice when they're reading the book review and say, oh, I'm going to go out and buy this book because this is remarkable. This is unusual. Someone would say this. When you think deeply about how your decision came about to put it in the book, did you weigh this, this issue? Did you think to yourself, man, on the one hand, people are really going to focus on this and the whole conversation could end up being about that. But on the other hand, it'll get more people to hear my message. Or did you just think, no, I just want to be honest and damn the consequences? Uh, yeah, of course, I thought about this. Uh, I thought that people would read the book. And I really cared about the people who are being persecuted for having been identified as a heroin user or some other vilified drug. So I thought about that group first. And I thought that, you know, I know more about drugs than most people. Uh, and so uh, if anybody takes the arrows and shots, let it be me on behalf of those people. That's what I thought. 
But frankly, I didn't think that folks would lose their mind, as some have. For example, saying that you use heroin occasionally but regularly or something, that, that means that you're an addict. That means that you have no control, you need help. Nobody stops to look at things like, oh, you just published this book, which is really hard to do. You published, uh, <laughs> I published another book this year. It's really hard to do. I have hundreds of scientific articles. Nobody stops to look at things like my kids graduated from Ivy League institution, all of these sorts of things. Um, and so I wasn't really, um, I, didn't, I didn't think that would happen. I didn't think the message would get distorted so badly. But even still, even if I knew that, I wouldn't change my mind because it's the right thing to do. Uh, I'm trying to get people to uh, focus on not the drug itself, but the individual's behavior. Is that person meeting their obligation? Are they good people? All of these sorts of things I'm trying to get people to focus on. But the sort of current media frenzy about this is really just proving my point. The vast majority of people have uh, read the book and understood this like you have, and that's what I'm, I'm really happy about. Your comparison to religion, I think, is exactly on point. And I always say to people, you know, when you're in a supposedly secular context and you see that a religious metaphor explains everyone's behavior as it does here, you know you're in the presence of orthodoxy. You know you're in the presence of a deep community commitment to a set of beliefs that it's very costly for anybody to dissent from because of the fear that if one person speaks out and says, hey, this is not true, the whole edifice, the whole structure of beliefs, customs, practices, interests, power, is in danger of being corroded. And I just want to give you, you know, all the respect that I know how to give for being someone who's willing to, to break out of that and to provide detailed, analytic, scientific arguments which I think are just tremendously important. And whether people agree with them or whether they disagree with them, people should engage them. And I think you made a huge contribution to intellectual discourse around this very difficult set of issues by, by doing that. So I just want, I really want to say thank you for that. And uh, I, you know, I could talk to you all day about this and maybe in the future um, when you're out from uh, book publicity, we you come back and we'll, we'll have a more relaxed and lengthy conversation about associated issues too. It's just great to have you here. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for reading the book and taking the argument seriously. That's all I ask. I really appreciate it. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it, particularly in this moment. So thank you so much. When I read a book that really gets me thinking, I am always incredibly excited if I get the chance to talk to the author. And in fact, for me, one of the great pleasures of Deep Background is that I have an excuse to call up the authors of new books and say, pardon me, would you be willing to have a conversation with me about this thing you've written? My interview with Dr. Carl Hart fit that bill for me. His book, Drug Use for Grownups, is a book that basically demands that you think anew about something that you thought you understood before. 
Not every argument in the book necessarily will convince every reader, and I don't think that every argument in the book necessarily convinced me. But what the book did is the thing that I feel nonfiction books often do at their most powerful, upset my fixed expectations, change my ideas. And the book does so by drawing attention to two different dimensions of argument. One is an argument about power in the world and about the effects of our drug policies on ordinary people, especially people of color and people who have less money. The other is to make us reconsider what we take to be scientific evidence of propositions that seem to have common sense, weight, and value. And it requires us to ask ourselves whether the science supports what the public discourse entails. Through that, we can then ask ourselves whether the discourse that we've been hearing all of our lives around drugs is accurate or not. The point of intellectual work that makes us question all of our assumptions isn't that every time we read something like that, we throw away everything we thought we knew. That's not how the brain works, and it's not how the brain should work. We always need to build on what we've learned. We always need to update what we know in light of new data and new information. What's most exciting for me, however, is that by challenging what we think we know, we have a chance, just a chance, to start afresh. And without fresh starts, we never change the world around us. There's nothing more thrilling for me than seeing things differently. And in the real world, there's nothing that gives us greater reason for possibility of change and optimism than taking on board ideas that, if followed, would change the way power is configured in our society and change the way the world really operates. I look very much forward to hearing how all of you think about Dr. Hart's interview and his book. And until the next time I speak to you, be careful, be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mo Laborde. Our engineer is Martin Gonzalez. And our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody. 
and every body. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the wind down tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Hey there, parents and teachers. Are you tired of feeling like every day is a battle of wills with your kids? Let me tell you about something that changed the game. Love and Logic. Love and Logic isn't just another parenting or teaching strategy. It's a mindset shift that empowers you to raise responsible, respectful kids while keeping your sanity intact. With Love and Logic, you'll learn practical techniques to set limits with empathy, give your kids the tools they need to make smart choices, and build relationships based on mutual respect and understanding. Love and Logic stands behind their methods with a one-year money-back guarantee. Try it out risk-free. If it doesn't change your life, we'll buy it back. Plus, you can get 10% off with code IHEART10. So if you're ready to say goodbye to power struggles and hello to peaceful, loving relationships with your kids, it's time to give love and logic a try. Visit their website or call today. Your sanity will thank you. Love and logic, because parenting and teaching should be a joy, not a chore. Visit loveandlogic.com.